I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. In fact, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case in 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, and the U.S. Supreme Court said there is a right of privacy. And so I think people just assume that that is their right to make their decision, and it was that case I used as the springboard to Roe versus Wade. There were three new faces sitting on the Supreme Court since the ruling in Loving versus Virginia. After President Lyndon Johnson nominated Thurgood Marshall the day after Loving was decided, two other justices had been appointed to the nation's highest bench. Warren Burger had replaced Chief Justice Earl Warren, and Harry Blackman replaced Justice Abe Fortas. President Nixon had nominated them both, and each of them would become a key figure when the Supreme Court took on the controversial issue of abortion. The woman you just heard was Sarah Weddington, an activist who had spent most of the prior decade working with women's groups to distribute information about safe abortion procedures, procedures that were illegal in her home state of Texas. At the start of 1971, Sarah Weddington was 25 years old, just out of law school, and working hard to find a way to legalize abortion. After lobbying to change the law legislatively to no avail, Weddington and her colleagues looked for help from the judicial branch. But first, they needed a client to show how the law was being enforced. Someone who wanted an abortion, but couldn't legally get one. Weddington finally found Norma McCorvey, a pregnant woman who ultimately had the child she bore since she could not find a legal abortion in Texas. But Weddington knew that they couldn't use McCorvey's real name since the case was so controversial. And besides, the case wasn't really about one woman who wanted an abortion. It was about a right for all women. And so its plaintiff had to be a symbol. So Weddington filed two cases back-to-back against the district attorney of Dallas, a man named Henry Wade, who defended the Texas abortion law. One of the cases was filed in the anonymous name of Jane Doe. The other was filed in the anonymous name of Jane Roe. This second case is what would ultimately be argued to the Supreme Court as the landmark case of Roe versus Wade. The newly liberalized abortion law brought immediate reaction. To uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children. I think that the judgment of the court will do a great deal to tear down the respect previously accorded human life in our culture. And I think that January 22nd, 1973 would be an historic day.
Oral arguments for Roe v. Wade had been set for December 13, 1971, just before the holidays. Sarah Weddington and her colleague Linda Coffey were strategizing their arguments. They knew the essential core of their position, that the decision on whether or not to terminate a pregnancy should be left up to the individual woman, and that the government should not have the right to deny her this decision. Now, while it once may have been extremely difficult to have the court interpret the Constitution as protecting these reproductive rights, the Griswold case had given Weddington and Coffey the approach that they needed. As you heard at the beginning, Weddington said she used Griswold and its recognition of a fundamental right to privacy as a springboard. With enough persuasion, Rowe's legal team could argue that this right to privacy should extend to a woman's right to seek an abortion. But if you remember, back in the original Griswold case, Professor Emerson had specifically said that the right to privacy would not extend to abortion because it happens outside the home. So now it was up to Weddington and Coffey to argue why it should. But like all legal teams who came before, they had to be prepared to argue from any constitutional angle. Extending substantive due process reasoning to the abortion issue was not a sure path by any means. So despite this opportunity to use the 14th Amendment, they took several different approaches and referenced several different parts of the Constitution in their written brief. Finally, the day of oral arguments arrived and Sarah Weddington walked into the Supreme Court building ready to argue what would be remembered as one of the most pivotal landmark cases in American history. Now, Weddington was pretty candid from the start about her willingness to use any argument that the court found persuasive. She was even teased about the various approaches she was taking by Justice Potter Stewart. Here is a clip of their exchange. I do feel that it is that the Ninth Amendment is an appropriate place for the freedom to rest. I think the Fourteenth Amendment is equally an appropriate place. Under the rights of persons to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I think in as far as liberty is meaningful, that liberty to these women would mean liberty from being forced to continue the unwanted pregnancy. You're relying in this branch of your argument simply on the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment? We had originally brought the suit alleging both the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the Ninth Amendment, and a variety of others. Then and anything else that might have been. Yeah, right. <laughs> but despite being flexible on where the right to privacy comes from, Weddington still made a push for substantive due process. If the court was willing to strike down contraception bans because they interfered with a fundamental liberty, it should do the same for abortion bans. But unlike the contraception or interracial marriage issues, what makes abortion particularly complex is the ethical question of when life begins. So even if the court did accept that a woman has the right to her choice, what about the rights for the fetus? Justice Byron White asked a question about this exact topic, and Weddington was ready to respond by arguing that constitutional rights attach when someone is born. 
The Constitution, as I read it and as interpreted and documented by Professor Means, attaches protection to the person at the time of birth. Those persons born are citizens. Uh, the enumeration clause, we count those people who are born. The Constitution, as I see it, gives protections to people after birth. After her time was up, Weddington sat down and Jay Floyd, the attorney defending Henry Wade and the Texas abortion law, stood up to deliver his arguments. Now, it was probably an effort to lighten the mood. Or maybe he thought that this opening remark would somehow go over well. But in any case, Floyd got off to a pretty shaky start after nobody laughed at his joke. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. That could arguably have been the moment he lost his case. But in all seriousness, Floyd got it together and delivered his response to Sarah Weddington. And while Floyd fervently argued against extending the right to privacy to cover abortion, he also addressed the important second prong of a substantive due process analysis. Because even if the court does find that a fundamental liberty is being deprived, the abortion ban could still be constitutional if the government provides a compelling reason for it. Banning contraception to promote procreation was not considered a compelling reason. Keeping races from intermarrying to protect racial purity was likewise not compelling. But there was a passionate argument being made that protecting the third-party fetus's life was a compelling interest. So when Justice Thurgood Marshall asked Floyd point-blank what the justification for the Texas abortion law was, Floyd was ready. What is Texas' interest in this passage? Uh, Mr. Justice, the Thompson case, or Thompson versus State, the Court of Criminal Appeals did not decide the issue of privacy. It was not before the court, or the right of choice issue. The State... Uh, the state court, the Court of Criminal Appeals, held that the state had a compelling interest because of the protection of fetal life. They recognized the humanness of the uh, embryo or the fetus. And they said, we have an interest in protecting a fetal life. When the day was done, the Supreme Court had a lot to think about. There was nothing left for Floyd, Weddington, or Coffee to do but wait. After months of deliberation, the parties got some news. Henry Wade had not won the case. But neither had Jane Rowe. The court notified the parties that they could not decide and requested that they all come back in for re-argument. Now, the court rarely does this, but it had made the same request back in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case. On the question of whether there's a fundamental right to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy, the Supreme Court seemed to be leaning towards saying yes. But there was still this compelling interest question. 
The clause says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Applied to the abortion context, the question was whether the state of Texas had deprived women of their fundamental right to choose without a sufficiently compelling reason. Jay Floyd, along with many conservatives today, argue that there was a compelling reason. Protecting the life of the fetus. And so the Supreme Court wanted to hear more arguments about this question. But before re-arguments were heard, two justices died. One was Justice Hugo Black, one of the court's staunchest opponents to substantive due process ever since the days of the Lochner era, up through and including the decision in Griswold. Now, Justice Black's death might have seemed great for Weddington's odds of winning, given his judicial philosophy. But then, Justice John Marshall Harlan II also died. The man who initially saw a fundamental right to privacy in the Due Process Clause. Both men had retired just weeks before they each passed away. And interestingly, while they were shorthanded two justices, the Supreme Court went ahead and decided a totally different landmark case. Now, as you might recall, the Griswold decision had only legalized contraception for married couples. Well, maybe unsurprisingly, it started to seem a little unfair to tell married couples that they could access contraception, but singles could not. So while the legal world was waiting for the re-arguments in Roe v. Wade, the court separately declared that the right to access contraception was a fundamental right for everyone. Momentum was certainly in Weddington's favor. You're listening to May It Please the Court. By the time the parties returned for re-argument on October 11, 1972, Justice Rehnquist had replaced Justice Harlan, and he did not like the idea of attaching new meanings to words in the Constitution. This did not bode well for Sarah Weddington, but the balance switched back when President Nixon nominated Lewis Powell to succeed Hugo Black. Unlike Black, Powell was not on the court in the 1930s, and didn't share the same dislike for substantive due process. So this round, lawyers of the state of Texas emphasized the argument that if the court does recognize a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy, the state's interest in protecting fetal life is still a compelling justification for banning abortion. This time, Jay Floyd would not be arguing on Texas's behalf. Instead, Robert Flowers got the job. And Flowers really focused on whether a fetus should be considered a human life, from a constitutional standpoint. But many of the justices pointed out, that's a very unclear and complex ethical question. 
Besides, what metric do you use to objectively decide when life begins? Here is an exchange between Flowers and Justice Potter Stewart on the subject. But it is the position of the state of Texas that upon conception we have a human being, a person within the concept of the Constitution of the United States and that of Texas also. Now how should we, how should that question be decided? Is it a legal question, a constitutional question, a medical question, a philosophical question, a religious question, or what is it? Your Honor, we we feel that it could be best decided by a legislature in view of the fact that they can bring before it the medical testimony, the actual people who do the research. But we do you have... You think it's, a, it's a, basically a medical question? Uh, uh, from a constitutional standpoint, no, sir. I think it's fairly squarely before this court. Uh, we don't envy the, uh, the court for having to make this decision. The justices then hinted at finding a compromise. Maybe the state's interest in protecting life becomes more compelling the later we are in the pregnancy. Protecting a nine-month-old fetus seems more justifiable than protecting a fetus upon conception. The justices tried to gauge how Weddington would feel about such a compromise, but she stayed focused on the privacy argument. In her conclusion, she brought home the point that the issue is not about whether abortion is right or wrong but it is about allowing a woman to make that decision for herself. The question of when life begins is a deeply personal one, and the government should not be able to answer that question and use that answer to deprive a woman of a fundamental right. No one is more keenly aware of the gravity of the issues or the moral implications of this case, but it is a case that must be decided on the Constitution. We do not disagree that there is a progression of fetal development. It is the conclusion to be drawn from that upon which we disagree. We are not here to advocate abortion. We do not ask this court to rule that abortion is good or desirable in any particular situation. We are here to advocate that the decision as to whether or not a particular woman will continue to carry or will terminate a pregnancy is a decision that should be made by that individual that in fact she has a constitutional right to make that decision for herself and that the state has shown no interest in interfering with that decision. After delivering her rebuttal argument, Weddington sat down. Arguments were over. Final deliberations were about to begin. Thank you, Mrs. Weddington. Thank you, Mr. Flowers. The case is submitted. Many landmark cases only make news after they are decided. The case of Lochner versus New York had defined an era of U.S. legal history, and yet it wasn't exactly on the front page of the newspapers at the time. The Griswold case had been responsible for recognizing a fundamental right to privacy, but not many people had been waiting with bated breath for its result. But on January 22, 1973, the whole country heard and reacted to the Supreme Court's holding 
in Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. The 7-2 to two ruling to that effect will probably result in a drastic overhaul of state laws on abortion. Specifically, the court today overturned laws in Texas and Georgia and ruled the government has no right to enter into a decision which should be made by the mother and her doctor. During the second three months of pregnancy, it ruled a state may regulate abortion procedures, but only to ensure the safety of the mother. And in the last three months, whatever state laws say prevails. Laws in 17 states may be affected by that ruling. In an opinion written by Justice Blackman, who had only been on the court for a couple of years by then, the Supreme Court officially held that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protects a woman's individual right to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. Similar to how it had done in Lochner v. New York, and almost exactly like it had done in Griswold v. Connecticut, the court reasoned that the Due Process Clause stops the government from infringing on an individual's fundamental right to privacy. The recognition of this specific liberty now included every person's right to access contraception, right to marry someone of a different race, and a woman's right to choose whether or not to get an abortion. But the Roe case was a little more complicated than the others. The court did end up ruling that the government's interest in protecting the fetus's life increases as the pregnancy continues. The state's justification for restricting abortion is most compelling at the end of a pregnancy and least compelling at the beginning. As you heard in the news announcement, the court came up with a trimester framework for when states can start to regulate abortion. By the third trimester, states can regulate abortion as long as they provide for exceptions such as when the health of the mother is at risk. But the main reason why Roe v. Wade is the landmark abortion case is because of the court's recognition of a new liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. A woman's choice is now a part of her fundamental right to privacy. Six additional justices joined Blackman's opinion, but two justices dissented. Justice White and brand new Associate Justice Rehnquist. Justice White's dissent might seem a little surprising, since he had joined Justice Harlan years earlier, not only in striking down contraception bans, but also in using the 14th Amendment to do so. Maybe he thought that the abortion issue went too far. In other words, maybe there's a right to privacy, but the state's interest in protecting fetal development was compelling enough for Justice White. Justice Rehnquist, meanwhile, brought up the argument that this broad reading of the 14th Amendment was getting out of hand. In his dissenting opinion, he said that to reach its result, the court necessarily has had to find within the scope of the 14th Amendment a right that was completely unknown to the drafters of the amendment. From Justice Rehnquist's perspective, The words written in 1868 had nothing to do with abortion, contraception, or even privacy. How can the 14th Amendment protect privacy 
when the word privacy is not in the 14th Amendment. He, like many of the justices who opposed the Lochner case, argued that the Due Process Clause was not intended to protect these civil liberties. Neither a liberty to contract, nor a right to privacy. The views he expressed in his dissent are very similar to what modern court conservatives argue. They may indeed have their own personal views on the abortion issue, but from a constitutional perspective, they argue that the Due Process Clause was never meant to be read this broadly. In fact, they find that the court liberals are imposing their personal views on the whole country. So, in the aftermath of Roe, the two schools of constitutional thought that had originated in the late 1800s started to go mainstream yet again. On one end of the spectrum, you can read due process of law as guaranteeing certain civil liberties, like privacy. At the other end, you can go back to 1868 and argue that the due process clause is only concerned with procedure. Justice Rehnquist took the reins from Justice Black in opposing substantive due process, and the idea that nine judges could use words from 150 years ago to pass judgment on the laws that a majority of the people have voted on, especially regarding important polarizing issues. But Black had been appointed by a Democrat. Republican President Nixon had nominated Rehnquist. But once Roe v. Wade was decided, the politicization of the Due Process Clause began again. But while conservatives made it their mission to limit or overturn the Roe decision, liberals were preparing to advance the idea of a fundamental right to privacy a little further. If the court was willing to legalize contraception and abortion nationwide, based on the privacy argument, then what about private consensual sex between homosexuals? And so, they prepared for a new battle in the war over substantive due process. The battle for gay rights. We'll hear more about how the due process clause affected the homosexual community in episode 7. May It Please the Court is produced by Untwist the Facts. Check out our website at www.untwistthefacts.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Untwist the Facts. I'm Alex Akavon, and thanks so much for listening.